With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for October 25th, 2018, the Now We Have Pipe Bombs edition of the Gap Fest. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine is in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. And John Dickerson of CBS This Morning is in New York. Hello, John. Hello, David. On this week's show, pipe bombs sent to the Obamas, Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, Maxine Waters, George Soros, Robert De Niro. Is American politics at an extraordinarily dangerous moment? Then the state of the midterm elections two weeks out. Are Democrats headed for disappointment after a summer of enthusiasm? And then the outrage over the Jamal Khashoggi murder has not diminished, but will it actually change the world's relationship to Saudi Arabia? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And do not forget, dear ones, we have a conundrum live show coming up on December 12th at NYU Skirball Center in Manhattan. There are tickets, still a few tickets available at slate.com slash live. It's going to be a wonderful show. We're going to discuss things such as if you could take back one thing you did before the age of 18, what would it be and why? Or what is the best, best scent to fill your home and what's the worst scent to fill your home with? And we need more conundrums like these or even better ones than these. So if you have an idea for a conundrum that you'd like us to talk about on the Conundrum Live show, please email us at gabfest at slate.com or tweet at us at at slategabfest and uh, hashtag at conundrum with your great conundrum idea. This show works because you all have such complexity, such wonderful, interesting questions, such difficult things that you contemplate, and we need you to submit your wonderful ideas so we can we can chew them over and and reach grand conclusions that it is, in fact, better to be a fish than a tree. Or actually, no, it was better to be a tree than a fish, but whatever. So please come to the show, slate.com slash live for tickets on December 12th, and then gabfest at slate.com or at slategabfest on Twitter to tell us your conundrums. Oh, and listeners, if you hear something that sounds like thunder, it is not because I'm recording outside in a storm. It is because there seems to be some jackhammering next to the Slate studio here in Washington, D.C. Some it's building is no doubt going up. what you're talking about is so exciting. You're like, you know, you need a rumble underneath you to build the suspense. That is uh, very nicely said, Emily, but not true. <laughs> As we tape on Thursday morning, there is a very active investigation into the distribution of pipe bombs across the country by a U.S. post and maybe hand delivery to at least 10 figures associated with the Democratic Party, liberal activism, and associated with attacks uh, by people who've been consistently attacked um, by the far right. So George Soros received a pipe bomb in his home. There was pipe bombs that were sent to the Clintons, at least two to Joe Biden, to CNN, to the Obamas, to Maxine Waters, to Eric Holder, to Robert De Niro, and maybe even since I last checked on the news, there are more. John, you would probably know. These bombs or these attempted bombings uh, have been denounced by President Trump and House Republican leaders, but they do come at a time of heightened rage, implication of violence, invocation of violence, uh, especially especially coming from some of the president's supporters towards and aimed at the media, although maybe and maybe aimed at politicians. I'm being slightly incoherent here because I feel slightly incoherent about it all. So, John, you have just probably spent the morning talking about this, hearing the latest update. So, first of all, are there is there any latest news 
so that we're at least as current as we can be as of Thursday morning? Uh, well, the latest news is um, that two were sent to uh, former Vice President Joe Biden um, and that there was also a package, also a bomb linked or matching the characteristics of the others that was sent to Robert De Niro's um, production facility in New York. Um, so you have that. And then um, uh, Maxine Waters and Eric Holder also on the recipient list. Um, so that's all we know at the moment. Um, and uh, in talking to experts about this all morning, it's kind of obvious, but, you know, they're they're looking for signatures that would show um, everything from the kind of postage used to the kind of material used. The, the gunpowder was apparently in one and also some glass shards. PVC pipe was used. Um, they'll take all those materials and try and draw vectors back to locations in the country. Also, it appears from the from the both the use of the stamp, some of the markings on the bombs and also the way in which there were some. Uh, misspellings, either purposeful or not, in the addresses um, suggest that whoever sent these is keeping one eye on the public reaction to it, and that can sometimes allow uh, investigators to go kind of smoke them out. And we should talk about this. They're, they are uh, getting some kind of thrill over the public reaction to this, um, and that sometimes causes them to put a foot wrong. All of these people, Emily, that, that who seem to be subject of the attack uh, are, have been regular targets of right-wing media. George Soros is constantly demonized. CNN and and John Brennan have been attacked for being critical of the president. John Brennan lost his security clearance in that. Maxine Waters and Hillary Clinton consistently are targets of savagery uh, from critics. Eric Holder, similarly. None of them really is actually at the center of anything in the election. None of them really is a, is a central figure in the actual election. Um, they're, they're sort of central figures to democratic politics. You know, I assume we should be really concerned that we've we've escalated to the pipe bomb phase of American politics. Yeah. I mean, look, it's always hard to draw direct lines from rhetoric to violence by someone else. And yet there are flashpoints in American culture. And when there is a lot of um, stirring up of emotions, we often see a few people take it out in terms of violence. I mean, this is connected in my mind, or it's hard not to connect it to the bombing of abortion clinics in the 80s and 90s, um, and more recently, too. It's not a coincidence that the targets of, um, you know, people who are at the fringes are people that the targets are getting so much attention. And you're right to point out that these are not people who are central figures in the election. And the the reason I think that matters is it just shows that the... um, kind of sideshow of American politics, what should be the sideshow of a lot of like, you know, angry, indignant, like outraged rhetoric by Trump at his rallies, by various right wing media, they're just kind of stirring up of division that has become central in the American media and on social media. And the level of distraction right now, I mean, we chose not to talk about the caravan story this week, and I'm happy we're not talking about it because I think it is like one giant distraction. But the way in which a kind of um, false alarm, a fake level of concern about something that is not actually deeply important to American policy and doesn't affect that many people's lives directly. It's just so high right now. And I feel like that's what we're seeing here is like a real threat of violence out of just a lot of like screaming and yelling. John, is there any analogous moment in American politics that you can think of? Has there ever been this much rhetorical and now potentially perhaps actual violence aimed at political opponents as there is now i'm sure there are there are analogous moments I'd, well i mean they're obviously assassin either you know there were assassinations um and you had um so anytime you have an assassination it's a it's a uh, a political result um was there as much talk about the um the culture of a particular party you know when kennedy was assassinated i don't remember um People, there were definitely signs greeting him in Dallas that were um, that were rough, um, but I don't remember anybody t- turning around and saying the Republican Party did this um, a- in in the way that people are jumping to conclude that this has a connection to President Trump without any evidence of that connection um, or any uh, any direct evidence based on anything we know about these specific um, bombs. Um, I, you know, do I? Is there a McKinley example or something that? Um, uh, or attempts at Andrew Jackson, maybe I'm missing, you know, uh, something. But um, 
this this cycle, um, you know, and when Steve Scalise was shot, there was a an effort by some to to blame uh, Democrats for demonizing Republicans, and that it was the atmosphere created by that demonization that led to the shooting. I think it's I think it's worth separating the the search for connections between specific politicians, particularly the president, and this current moment. Separate that question, which we don't really have the answers to yet. Um, with a secondary question, though, about the president's role, which is that if people are using this moment to have a conversation about um, the nature of our public discourse, the president plays an outsized role, an outsized role in our political life. He is the significant singular actor, singular largest actor in American political life. So when he says something, it carries extra weight. And so his contribution to this can't really be matched with the contribution of people on the left who've said incendiary things. A president is a president. There's no one else who's on the same playing field. The second thing is that it's not just whether he created the conditions for this to happen or not that is that is worth talking about. The question is whether the institutions and the whole American set of norms that allow a country to rally together, that uh, those guardrails that are there for everybody to grab a hold of in moments of tension where things appear to have gone too far, and then his ability to both frame the words for the moment, but then also have those words be uh, believable by the entire country because of the way he's chosen to run his presidency, he has a far diminished capacity to participate in that traditional role than previous presidents have. And that has nothing to do with whether these are connected to him or not. That's an after-the-fact role that a president plays that he just has neither the inherent skills for nor has he prepared the conditions for that moment. And that's why some of these norms exist. Because then when there's an emergency, the entire country goes into the grooves of those norms that existed and that you as a public official maintained and were a steward of because you know that this kind of stuff can happen and at the end of the day, we are all Americans. One of the things that, I, that I've been trying to wrap my head around is that for most people, this violent rhetoric and the, the kind of incendiary rhetoric is a, is a game that really that it's a, that most people who are playing in social media and even playing in the kind of sort of fringy, uh, fringy parts of mainstream media in the world of the Daily Caller or in the world of whatever the kind of equivalent on the left of the Daily Caller is, the temperature, you know, the temperature is very high, but nobody really means it. And I, I know this sounds, this may sound trivializing, but we all know people who've gotten death threats, social media death threats. I think Emily, in fact, you've been the subject of social media death threats, or at least sort of threats. And and yeah. most of the time, you can just sort of be like, you know what, that's just rhetoric. That's people playing around. They're trying to make me uncomfortable. They don't actually mean it. But there is when even though if 98 percent of people who are who uh, face are subject are, are engaged in this this process of extremely emphatic and, and incendiary rhetoric, if 98 percent of them don't really mean it. And if you met them on the street, you could have a perfectly civil conversation with them. There are some people who are fragile, who are at the edges, who take things seriously, who have a maybe a kind of slightly mistaken uh, sense of where the the boundary of reality and and rhetoric is who will act on it and what i what i worry about is that as we saw with pizzagate is that all the people who were promoting the pizzagate conspiracy knew it was bullshit they all knew it was nonsense they all knew it was ridiculous it was a it was a game it was a way to sort of foment division and and cause discomfort for people but they knew it wasn't true but there were people who, because they're mentally slightly fragile and susceptible, took it to be true and then acted on it. And that's what I worry that we're we're doing with the with the the ten, with the the boiling boiling things is that is not that most people are going to start sending pipe bombs, but there are people who are just susceptible enough that they will that they will take they will decide it isn't a game anymore. Right. I mean, I think that is the kind of connection. So it's like tenuous and everybody can deny responsibility. And yet there it is. I, the other problem, of course, with the kind of, you know, temperature boiling game playing you're talking about is that for lots of other people, it makes them just feel like, you know, the political process is hopelessly compromised and it's impossible to tell what the truth is. And there's just a sort of like dampening effect on the electorate from a lot of those disinformation campaigns, too. So there's the small but really acute 
um, problem of a threat to violence. And then there's like this larger, you know, kind of just like wet towel effect on everybody. So, John, you're the world's most civil person. Um, (laughs) How can as a nation, can we try to lower the temperature? I well. I, I'm a str- I mean, just sorry. Let me just finish the thought, which is I. D- David French came on our show a few weeks ago when when uh, I think John, you were out, and David French is very conservative, and he holds views that I don't agree with, and I think if policies that David French believed in were carried out by a president, I, w- I would find the country a worse off place. Uh, I think he probably feels the same thing about me, and he probably feels the same way about Emily. And there, there are lots of things that he says that I disagree with. I, but I fundamentally believe he is a person who's acting in general from goodwill and from a wish that the country thrive. And so I would like to be able to have a civil discussion with him. But the level of irateness from and we did um, some have of a our li- discussion. And we did. Right. And we did. But the level of irateness from some of our listeners about the fact that David French was on it or the da- things that David French has said since then – I found unsettling. I was like, why, you know, what, what's the problem with having this person who's a, he represents, he's a mainstream of conservative thought. In fact, he's probably on the left of conservative thought at this point. Not I don't really. know. Well, all right. Well, he's in the mainstream of conservative thought and, and he, you know, he's a person of goodwill. And so, but, ha, but, yeah. but that, that's, how do we, how do we get to a point where, where actually people are behaving decently in public and private and in, in social to each other? Yeah, I I am not uh, I'm not sure. I think that um, again, I'm more worried about the resiliency and the durability of the rest of the. There are always going to be cranks, and we can debate uh, without finding a satisfying conclusion about how much is released into the atmosphere before you have a, an explosion that is greater or more frequent than you would have just through having a country with millions and millions of people, some of whom are unstable. That's one sec. But the other is what you're talking about, which is that the world in which this event, these bombs land, is one in which we've increasingly become more brittle. We are less durable and we have less resilience. And so this attaches to everybody's existing sense of rage and sense of... um, their voice is not being heard in a system where it's being shut out, whether it's being shut out by the other side that's shouting you down or being shut out by the media that's either distracted or seems to be in cahoots with the, the side you don't like. And so that is stuff you can control. You know, James Q. Wilson spent a lot of time writing and thinking about character. And it used to be something, and as a conservative, he used to say, you know, character is something you want, regardless of whether you're a conservative or a liberal. A lot of liberals looked at him and said, no, you're just trying to tell us all how to behave. But when he talked about character, he talked about basically two things, empathy and self-control. Empathy for the other side, which is what you were describing, David, and you're listening to David French. And then self-control, which keeps you from declaring that somebody is evil when you simply disagree with them. And that's not just about being polite. It's about keeping those norms so that you're not incredibly brittle and you don't rush for weaponry right away. And that's something you just basically people have to cultivate in their own in their own lives. The problem is that in the immediate moment, the short-term benefit of, especially when you feel a perceived threat from the other side, because the other side isn't playing by these norms, it's incredibly tempting. And you have social media devices, Twitter pulls out of you your most heated responses because those are the ones that where you get social currency and also they're the ones to bat back the guy you who has just used some you know off said some awful thing all those short-term incentives keep us going down this road and and it's very hard to make the case for the long-term incentive for not behaving in in those immediate ways because it creates this long-term problem which we then which then you know when in a moment like this everybody realizes the cost of I think there's also just the problem of bad faith, right? How many of these arguments, like the, you know, the sort of gleeful mischief you were talking about on the right, David, how many of them are in bad faith? And when the volume and the attention to that gets turned up, it's hard to this is like goes back to the whole high road versus low road problem that I think Democrats and liberals have been struggling with. And one thing that's really struck me about these bomb threats is how quick 
conspiracy-minded people on the right are to say that this is a false flag operation, right? This is like the standard response on the right now when something goes wrong that makes people on the left look like they're paying a price for heated rhetoric or for something else. It's to immediately say that, you know, no, these bombs are not sent by someone who hates the targets, but rather like the targets themselves are trying to make themselves seem like they're under threat. I just find the instant resorting to that argument to be revealing. Yeah, that is that's true. As you said, it's it's mostly the cranks who are going to the false. I mean, there are two categories of people. There's the one category of people who say, we don't know any facts about anything. And so, I mean, you know, all possibilities are still open. And then you, but the people who but are- cranks, the, but, well, but cranks includes like President Trump saying there are Middle Eastern people in the caravan when that's not true, oh, right? Or Lou Dobbs saying that like— Well, that's a separate— Well, I just feel like the— I thought you were talking about the bombing. I don't think it's separate. I feel like— I thought you were talking about the false well, flag but thing I think the that. Well, I mean, yes, I am talking about that. Which is separate from the Middle East. I okay. guess so. But I think that the pulling in of conspiracy theorists, you're right. I'm moving from false flag yeah. to something so that's wait, a little different. So wait, can we just wrestle to the ground? It's not crankdom, though. Well, can, can we just make a distinction? Because I think the, the false flag people on the bombings has been, uh, you know, people who are way out on the fringe, which is important to make a distinction between that and what you said about the Middle Eastern uh, thing, which is different and I think contributes to what I was talking about earlier, which is when the president is in a position of authority. You know, he's not just some commentator. He's the person who has the force of the office behind him. And when he says, as he now admits, totally out of totally making it up, that it's Middle Easterners involved, that carries with it a weight. And that is a, that's a misuse of the power of his office. He doesn't have any idea that it's that that's I mean, he admitted that. Right. Um, that's that I think is different than a crank on Twitter claiming that the bombings right. were a false flag. Right. Fair and, enough. Until I see evidence of the false flag the, accusation in more mainstream media, I the, stand down on that point. And the, but John, just to add to your point, John, there's an excellent story, I think, in the Washington Post this week pointing out that when the president does say things like that, there's now a, an infrastructure at the White House designed to prove this nonsense. And so it isn't simply that he's saying it. As you say, he's not simply a pundit and it's not simply it carries the weight of the office. It's that actually it activates a whole team within the administration to act as though what he is saying is true, which which causes real world consequences for this rhetoric. I would just Yeah, and then in our fact checking, we sort of soberly contribute to it too, right? Here we are like saying this isn't true, but every time we repeat some rumor that isn't true, we also create confusion about whether it might be true. Like there's a lot of research about that. It drives me crazy because I feel like we all get enlisted in the spreading of these um, abhorrent, damaging false rumors. I want to finish actually with one thought, which is sort of a repeat of what I just said a minute ago, is that I think it is the thing that you have to remind yourself is that it takes an awful lot of hubris in oneself to think of yourself as being the moral and righteous person because of beliefs that you hold and that others who hold opposing political beliefs are wicked. You know, I'm sure every one of us who is a listener has uh, friends or relatives who holds political opinions that are the opposite of ours. And I bet if you look at their life and how they treat other human beings and what they do with it and the, the good they do in the world, that it, it matches or exceeds yours. I certainly feel that way. I, 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 and, and so you can certainly believe that people hold political beliefs that, that are wrong or that will lead the country in wrong directions. And, and you should uh, seek to, to defeat those political beliefs or defeat those policies that they, they want to pursue. But to to attribute to human beings immorality or wickedness or, or bad faith is is where that's the first step that that takes us where we're where to the bad places where we are and I I just you know I'm reminded my mother-in-law who is a Trump supporter my mother-in-law is a finer person than than almost anyone I know on earth and I think she's wrong-headed but does she act righteously in the world and do good and treat people uh, with respect and dignity a hundred percent. That is the reminder I have to give myself all the time. Can I just say one final thing about the public role of, of a president in these moments? This is something that the president has in his capacity. We've seen it because he has done it with respect to the policies of uh, the leader of Turkey, Russia, and North Korea, in which when confronted with their worst acts, he has said, well, what, you think we're so great all the time? He just chooses not to in, in cases where it's his direct political opponents. All right. Slate Plus members 
get bonus segments on the GabFest, another Slate podcast, of course. And our bonus segment this week is a discussion of the lawsuit over Harvard's Asian-American admissions policies uh, or Harvard's overall admissions policies and how they impact Asian-Americans. And um, it will be a great discussion. I know because even though I'm doing this, saying this now, we've already had the discussion and I know it was great. It was so a great discussion. Definitely listen to it. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos it is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frames so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We are less than two weeks out from the midterm election. The midterm election feels like it has been approaching for about 15 years. Uh, I think Nate Silver has been put under protection. A special team of, of pundit guards are, are watching his movements 24 hours a day. They are examining his, his feces to see if the, his feces can reveal anything. Uh, about what's going to happen in the election, every every oracular breath that he says uh, is is analyzed. Every single thing that can be polled, the Kavanaugh effect, the caravan effect, the Trump effect is being polled. So, John, what does it look like to you? Oh my gosh! Twelve days out. Well, it's you know I think. Uh, I mean, I was always, you know, uh, very nervous about predicting anything long before we had the 2016 uh, election, because before we had 2016, we had 1800 and 1824 and 1948 and a variety of other instances in which people thought they knew what was going to happen and then it didn't happen. But it still looks like the case that the um, as far as the House goes, um, you know, various people from 538 to the New York Times have said there's, you know, roughly about 80 percent chance that Democrats are going to hold that are going to take the House. And that's a combination of a variety of things. One, the president's approval rating while ticking up recently, um, his net approval rating is still in negative uh, negative territory, which puts him historically since the Truman era. He's got the fourth worst negative rating for a president of all the presidents in the 19 um, midterm elections. So his approval rating, while inc- while having gone up a little recently, is still in bad shape. So there and there has increasingly since 1994 been a relationship between presidential approval rating and midterm outcomes for his party. So with a notable exception being in 2002 for well, no, not a notable exception because George W. Bush's approval rating was up. Okay, other thing is the generic ballot is at about 8.6, meaning people pick Democrats over Republicans. And 112 Democrats have outraised Republicans in this last fundraising cycle, which is in, I think that's the 112 most competitive races. I, I can't remember if that's the exact. But the fundraising haul from Democrats has been mammoth, which suggests um, a lot of momentum on the Democratic side. So- the playing field is also about 60 seats. All they need to do is pick up 23. So that's so all of those numbers explain why you get to that sort of 80 percent chance that the Democrats could take back the House. That still means that, you know, 20 percent chance that they won't. But those are the those are the all the things that kind of point towards um, towards Democrats uh, possibly taking the House. So, Emily, the so the 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 Senate side looks much worse for Democrats and much better for Republicans. Um, do you do you see any reason that that would change? I mean, it does feel like that that some of the key Senate races, Democrats are in big trouble, notably North Dakota. They're, they're gonna, clearly going to lose that seat. Uh, but even in other 
seats that they hope to be very competitive, Texas seems probably gone. I guess that's right. Although on the other hand, a lot of these races are still within the margin of error close to them, right? And so I guess I just feel particularly burned by all the confidence of the 2016 predictions. And what it seems to me like Nate Silver keeps saying is, you know, remember, there's uncertainty here, which is also right. what John was just reminding us. So to me, it seems... Um, uh, mistaken to assume that these uh, these races on either side are a foregone conclusion. Because the thing about midterms is turnout is such a crucial element. And turnout has been lower historically for Democrats in midterm elections. And yet there are a few reasons, aren't there, this year to think that maybe that won't be the case. Some indications from early voting in particular that suggest that turnout could be up among Democrats and then that could like change the whole balance. But I don't know, maybe I've become too mistrustful of polls, partly because when you, you know, the New York Times has been doing this like kind of public polling. And when you see how many phone numbers they have to try in order to get like a few people to answer the damn phone <laughs> and how few young people they're able to connect with because people with cell phones don't pick up their phone. I mean, I don't pick up my phone when strange numbers call me. It just I feel like I'm not sure we really know how to take the temperature so well anymore, at least in these close contests. John, what do you think? Uh, you know, I think that's I think that's right. There are a bunch of other reasons that that things are, are muddy, too, which is that it's very hard to poll in some of these congressional districts for the for the reasons you just cited, and it's expensive, and so the polls just don't aren't happening. There aren't enough of them, right? And so that's a that's a problem. I should just say that the number on the on the hundred and twelve is this is coming from Amy Walter, the Cook Political Report. It's one hundred and twelve Democrats outraised Republican opponents in Republican held seats, um, and so that's an extraordinary number. It's not just that they outraised them, but usually people give to the incumbent because they think they're going to get reelected. So. The Democrats now in the Cook political analysis have a clear advantage in 17 Republican-held seats. Okay, so that's 17 on their way to needing 23. There are 30 other toss-ups outside of that. And so you can imagine, and those are pretty much close. So if you take the 17 and then they just win half the toss-ups, you would get past your 23. Right. I mean, it does seem like those are pretty solid pillars to be leaning on. And yeah, sure. we're also seeing, you know, the sort of last minute push to make people come back to their partisan team that proved effective in 2016. And until it doesn't prove effective, I guess I'm wondering about it. I mean, I'm also this is a race nobody is watching nationally, but in Connecticut, we have a governorship um, and the Democrat Ned Lamont seemed like he was way ahead. And then there was a poll this week that, you know, no, it seems like his Republican opponent, uh, Bob Stefanowski, is within three points. So I don't know. Like, who knows? Do, <laughs> That's do, how there, it makes me feel. There is this point that, again, Nate Silver hallowed be his name, that Nate Silver keeps making that if there's two to three points of polling error, all these numbers could be upside right. down. If you have yeah. two to three points of polling error in the favor of the Democrats, there you know, could be a historic walloping of Republicans. If it's two to three points of error in the favor of Republicans, uh, Democrats would be lucky to take the House. Uh, but is there any reason to, to know or is there any reason to guess what direction that error would be? We're, I think I mentally, because of 2016, assume that any polling error is going to be is going to actually redound in the favor of Republicans, that it's Republicans who maybe are answering polls less frequently. But maybe that's wrong. Maybe maybe that's already taken into account in whatever modeling is being done. Do you know this, John? That's a really good question. Well, that's where the modeling and that's uh, that. another thing Nate would say is that also how you choose your model determines um, your numbers as well, but the predictions you make about the shape of the electorate. Um, I mean, we do know that historically – uh, and recently, even more so, that that there has been an instinct of the, the electorate to, in the midterm elections, to vote against the uh, to vote vote against the the incumbent party in the presidency. That's why uh, George W. Bush. It was such a big deal um, in two thousand and two when he did when Republicans did relatively well by historical terms um, because it was a it was an anomaly. Um, and the the. The big question we're going to learn the answer to on Election Day is whether the transitive power of Donald Trump's um, complete taking over of the Republican Party, whether that transitive power exists. So in other words, in 2016, he he had support that was stronger in some places than people would have guessed. 
Um, again, the national polls were essentially right uh, because Hillary Clinton did win the national vote, but there were bad polls in pockets of states. And the question is, does a Republican candidate get the juice from the president that the president would get were he on the ballot? Um, and that's a uh, and we're just going to find out if that's if that's the case. All right. Last last uh, thing on this, um, actually, to you or to either of you, to you, but but to you, Emily, primarily. So there's 12 days or so left before the election. Uh, if, oh, thank let's, God it's going to be over what, what, soon. What, how should how should people mentally spend and spend their time? I suppose for some people who are politically active, you should probably get out and canvass for candidates. But if, if people who are not going to canvass, what's a way to spend these last 12 days that won't drive you crazy? Oh, my God. Just do anything else. Either go out and try to convince people to register to vote or to vote for your candidate if you're organized enough to do this or tune everything out and like go, I don't know, do whatever relaxing thing you can do to escape the noise. Or if you're like it's bifurcated. <laughs> or if you're interested, what, if you're interested in politics, you can you can jo- join me on my windmill tilting um uh, parade, which is, um, and I was thinking about this too, with respect to the, to the quote unquote caravan, um, which is when you look at the caravan, there are, there are really one of the major tools in a president's toolbox is, uh, focusing public attention on big national emergencies. The president called this a national emergency. So it's not a national emergency at the pace they're going. The caravan is not going to reach nothing yeah. like a national <laughs> they're, emergency, but they're, they're literally not going to make it to the United States till mid December. And by the way, we know where they're going. And they won't get in <laughs> right. when they do. And they are the not. Right. States. I mean, it's just it couldn't be further from an actual national emergency. So what actually are the national emergencies that the blunt public power of a presidency could actually be um, directed towards to create a public conversation and to change minds? And so, you know, you can you can think through what those would be and then why and how would a president. So in the election, same. Let's deal. make a list. Yeah, sure. So, you know, climate change, the fact that, um, you know, millions and millions of Americans have no access to health care, um, uh, income inequality, the opioid crisis, uh, the opioid crisis um, income inequality, the gap between uh, the number of jobs that are open and the number of people who are available who can actually uh, take part in those jobs or have those jobs because they lack, the lack the skills. of affordable housing. Uh, sure. Poverty is also big. Um, now we could we yes. could imagine you could imagine that what what, what the blunt force of the rhetorical presidency is what I was talking about. Some of those problems can't be um, necessarily ameliorated by that. But anyway, so with the election, is there an equivalent way of doing it? In other words, what are the issues, and what specifically would people want if their team uh, either kept control of the house or um, took control of the house? You know, what specifically just, you know, spending some time thinking what specifically would you want done? Not just like I want climate change fixed or, you know, I want taxes cut more. But what's the realistic thing that you would expect from all these new people that are coming to Washington um, as a way to keep the energy of the coming election that you're interested in, but not lose your mind listening to endless hours of punditry that will all be over soon enough when we have actual results? I said it was tilting and windmills. I'm not. uh... All right. No, no, I've, that's that sounds that's admirable. As somehow John we left Dickerson. out mass incarceration. I'm just oh, going to yeah. add that one in sure. there. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The Jamal Khashoggi scandal continues to dominate international news. This week, Turkey's President Erdogan detailed his government's investigation of the murder. He revealed footage of the Saudi body double. He made it clear this was a planned assassination by a team of Saudi hitmen inside the Saudi embassy in Istanbul. The Saudi government keeps retreating from cover story to cover story. Uh, You know, first he's not dead, then oh, maybe he's dead. It was an accident. Then it was rogue killers. it was because a fight broke out. Now um, they have conceded that it was actually a planned murder, but they still are separating it from MBS. MBS himself has called it heinous. He held his Davos in the Desert conference and ghoulishly, so ghoulishly, leading up to his Davos in the Desert conference, he 
sent out a photo op of him shaking hands with Khashoggi's son. Khashoggi's son obviously compelled to do this, but Khashoggi's son having to pretend uh, that this was not the man who had just murdered his father, which was just, that's a kind of thing that is, that's pure Stalin. That's pure, like, that's that's top level dictator purge action there. It's creepy. What I don't see, Emily, is any sign of real punishment for the Saudis or for MBS. There doesn't seem to be a constituency to take to take him out uh, because there doesn't seem to be an alternative power source in the kingdom that anyone wants to work with. There is no desire in this administration to punish them. There's uh, still huge amounts of investment flowing from Saudi Arabia to other to private the private sector in the U.S. and Europe. Everyone kind of wants this to go away, right? Yeah, right. I mean, I think if you like polled some world leaders, you would want to get rid of the crown prince, MBS, right? Like he's revealed himself to be a bad actor in all of this. And the notion that letting women drive um, and letting comedians perform meant some broader wave of real reform in Saudi Arabia seems like we've now learned that that was a false hope. But there is no clear way to get rid of him. And so it just seems like a matter of kind of sullying him. At least um, that seems to be the goal of the Turks. I've been really interested that President Erdogan of Turkey seems to be just milking this for all it's worth. He's done such a skillful job of keeping it in the news and continuing to criticize MBS, but without being able to really take him down. So it's like a power play that makes Erdogan seem righteous and strong. And oh, by the way, like maybe we'll forget that Turkey is also jailing journalists. But it doesn't really see it just it doesn't seem to have any real consequences, especially because all the money flowing back and forth is going to continue to flow. And our government is already on board for, you know, not punishing Saudi Arabia. So on the one hand, President Trump said punishment would be severe. And on the other hand, there's Steve Mnuchin, our secretary of the Treasury, smiling in photos with the crown prince. And there's Jared Kushner defending him in a very rare television interview. It just yeah, it's Interesting. I had I had always, because I'm an ignoramus, had been thinking of the there being bipolarity in that part of the world, and that there's a Sunni bloc that is led by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which MBS uh, is the leader of now, and then there's a Shiite bloc led by the Iranians, which uh, which um, is opposed, and these they're kind of that every conflict could be identified as being a conflict between those two groups, but. It, Turkey's presence in this makes you realize actually there's a third one, an Islamist political bloc, which is opposed to the kind of the kingdom, the kingdom which is anti-democratic and it, you know gets its credibility from being the the custodians of the mosques. And actually that democratic Islamism that er- Erdogan represents is a different force. Uh, and also Turks are of course ethnically different than than Arabs. Um, but it's a different force and a different power. And so there's actually this sort of tripartite power. And they're all bad. They're all the choices are bad. You, None of them is behaving in a way in the world that the US really wants to, to get behind. Um, but it is a it's a balancing act that I didn't, I didn't recognize that the third actor was there. Um, so john, uh, one of the lessons that we seem to be learning is that there is a massive amount of impunity in the world now that if you are a bad actor, and you're a bad actor who's on the on the Trump side, that the United States is going to let you do what you want, that there is not there's not going to be punishment if you are a bad actor who is otherwise friends with a Kushner or a Trump. Is that does that seem to be the new rule? The U.S. has let bad actors with whom it has alliances do bad things in the past. It just hasn't been in real time and we haven't all been watching it. And you haven't had an American president uh, seem to be working for the defense in his initial Comments Again, this happens in a context, and the context is on certain issues, the president is very quick to take evidence that um, is either very small or is wisp-like and use it as the foundation upon which to make some very serious judgments about political opponents. Then when there is mounting evidence of something that he is uh, inclined not to want to believe, he's very reluctant and calls for restraint and days of investigation. And so you, you wonder what's the 
what's the reason for the holdup when in many other instances he is um, quick to move and boasts about how he has this special instinct for knowing things on based on on no actual evidence. So you had you had the president reacting and uh, in this way that was contrary to, to the way he reacts in other instances, which suggests which sends that signal. But now the administration is moving um uh, belatedly, uh, the State Department canceled the visas of 21 people um, supposedly involved. The Saudi or, the Saudis changed their story yet again on Thursday, saying at first that it was a kind of interrogation gone wrong to now saying that it was, in fact, a premeditated, which was basically catching up with the facts because there have been plenty of reports about how um, uh, all of the activity in the aftermath uh, looked very carefully planned. And um, when you're improvising something that's gone horribly wrong, you rarely have a fake beard and glasses at your disposal that you had beforehand. Um, false. To, to, I always have false, them with me. Right. So, um, I, you know, what also is the, David Kaiser on a bone saw regularly right. too. What does this send to our allies? I mean, uh, I don't know. It also depends at the end of the day what the actual UF, full U.S. response is. You know, part of this picture is that there is a complicated set of relationships that are not just financial based on the amount of money that the Saudi Saudi government spends on U.S. Uh, armaments. It's also the amount of money that Saudi Arabia is putting into American companies. It's that that money would go to the Russians who are trying to court them in the wake of this instead of to uh, the West. It's that the U.S. has, the president in particular, and his national security team has put Iran as the central threat, perhaps behind North Korea, in its global national security vision. And Saudi Arabia is crucial and important to that task. And so untangling all of that is also a part of deciding how to both punish the Saudi government if the U.S. thinks that they are involved. And oh, by the way, it's still not clear that the U.S. position, the U.S. position is to blame some Saudi actors. The question is whether the crown prince is involved. And that still is something we don't know. And that supposedly the director of the CIA is over in Istanbul trying to figure out. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. I'm not going to talk about my martini situation, not talking about it. So when, Emily Bazelon, you're having a nice glass of of rosé on the Bazelon couch, chatting with some guests, what are you going to be chattering about with them? I'm going to double chatter again this week because I snuck into you last week and it didn't seem to bother anyone. So I want to, first of all, recommend my sister, Laura Bazelon's new book, which is called Rectify and is about restorative justice, particularly in the context of wrongful convictions. It is a terrific, well-written, really full of heart book about some work Laura has done, about um, work other people have done on restorative justice, and it is out this week. Um, Laura came on as a Slate Plus guest over the summer, some of you may remember, um, so you should totally check out her book, Rectify. And then I wanted to um, talk about such an interesting story this week in Corpus Christi, Texas. There's a former prosecutor who is suing the district attorney's office for firing him, saying that the reason he got fired was that one of his supervisors ordered him to violate the law by hiding evidence. That, in other words, this guy's bringing the lawsuit was doing the best he could to comply with his legal obligations to turn over evidence that could have um, helped the accused defendant prove his innocence. And his supervisors ordered him um, not to turn it over. And that's why he got fired. So the former district attorney in Corpus Christi, who's since lost his election, so far, they're not just they're not conceding the facts or disputing them. They're just arguing that prosecutors offices have total discretion to fire anyone for any reason. And so this wrongful termination suit can't go forward. The Texas Supreme Court just agreed to hear this case. And uh, it's just going to be really interesting to watch as a test of um, what prosecute, like, are there any protections for prosecutors who try to make sure, you know, over the um, terrible instructions of their supervisors that they're obeying the law? This prosecutor is suing. His name is Eric Hillman. Um, so we can all watch and see what happens to his case at the Texas Supreme Court. John, what is your chatter? My chatter is from a great New York Times um, uh, feature that they're doing, uh, Overlooked, which is basically the obituaries of um, famous women uh, throughout history as an attempt to kind of counterbalance the fact that the Times, for most of its 
um, career has been focused on the obituaries of famous men. And this one this week, there was one about Minnie Mae Freeman Penny, who was um, known as Nebraska's fearless maid. And the way in which she became fearless was it was uh, January 12th, 1888, and she's a school teacher in rural Nebraska. And it's a pretty balmy day for January in Nebraska. It's about the 40s. And um, she goes off to school, and then suddenly there is a turn in the weather. And over lunch, a snowstorm uh, hits. But not just any snowstorm. A massive, violent, hail-pelting-the-window snowstorm. So what does Freeman do? Does she hang out in the one-room schoolhouse? I don't actually know if it was one room. But the tiny, rickety schoolhouse getting battered by the snowstorm? Or does she evacuate the kids out of the little schoolhouse? Because that had its own... Ooh, I, know, a, I know, I know. There's a blizzard going on outside. She evacuates so, them. In the in the the the, the pell mell blizzard, the the door flies off its hinges. The tarp roof tears away. Okay, so the elements are coming inside. The decision is made for. So she looks through the classroom, finds some twine. She loops the twine around each of the pupils, and then out she goes into the storm, trekking to safety. Of course, there's a blizzard going on, right? So anyway, they walk for a mile, and finally they find a um. And by the way, this is like a historic storm in the end of the day. It ends up t- t- totally uh, like um, socking in and, and ma- massacring the whole Midwest. So anyway, she finds a, a, her way to a barn. The kids are saved. This then becomes um, a, a song, a song of the Great Blizzard of 1888. Thirteen were saved, also known as Nebraska's Fearless Maid. It was an amazing story. She went on to live a wonderful life. And um, throughout her life, when she was asked about it, she always said, too much has already been said of a simple act of duty. That's funny. I just, in a similar point, I was just reading a story on Atlas Obscura about a a, a monument to a woman who's a had a some similar kind of uh, celebrity in Victorian England. She, she was a lighthouse keeper, a lighthouse keeper's daughter who helped rescue people from a shipwreck during a terrible storm and she saved all these people and she became uh, a celebr a victorian celebrity and it ruined her life she was it was destroyed her she couldn't she she just couldn't grapple with it and she she was miserable afterwards she hated all the fame she hated the people coming to her and um it was a, it was a different ending but i like i like yours better <laughs> it is cheerier yeah my chatter is about a fantastic detail in a story in courts. Uh, I'm sure you all have seen this, uh, the news about Amazon getting rid of its algorithm that it was using to help with hiring decisions. So Amazon, in an effort to make hiring more fair and more efficient, uh, taught, a, taught an artificial intelligence algorithm to select resumes or select people who would be qualified candidates to work at various Amazon jobs. And they were running this algorithm. and they had to get rid of it because they realized that and they, the, the da- they were training the algorithm. So an algorithm learns based on previous data that it's been fed. And the previous data was about Amazon's hiring decision over the previous 10 years. And so the this algorithm that Amazon had was throwing out candidates or downgrading candidates who went to women's colleges or who are women because Amazon over the previous 10 years had not been hiring women. And so the algorithm was like, well, Amazon wasn't hiring women. So if you went to a women's college, you probably won't fit in well here. So we shouldn't hire you. So Amazon, to its credit, recognized this was a problem and got rid of its algorithm. So that that was fine. So Quartz was writing about the, the, the sort of fallout from that. And did some reporting, and they came across this incredible example from a. There's a, an employment attorney who says one of his clients was vetting a company selling a resume screening tool, and so the resume screening tool had an algorithm, an AI algorithm that was that was deciding who to hire based on facts in the resume. After an audit of this algorithm, the resume screening company found that the algorithm found two factors to be most indicative of job performance: if someone's name was Jared. And if they played high school lacrosse, this oh algorithm, God. this algorithm, <laughs> this algorithm was was picking out Laxboros because you know some from some data set there had been some some Jared named Laxboros who had done well in jobs, and so that's what it decided was was the the key indicator for job performance. And so of course they didn't end up using this tool, but it just shows that if you have some fucking garbage input into your into your algorithm, you're going to get you're going to get garbage output. There's another great detail in the story, actually, which is that if you guys remember that Google used to have these brain teasers that it, it would ask people, yes. you know, how many golf balls does it take to fill a school bus? 
you know, how many gas stations are there in the United States? How would you figure that out? And it turns out that those brain teasers were, were a complete waste of time. That was what their SVP of people operations concluded that after they that it had nothing to do with your actual ability as a Google employee, whether you could solve these problems. Uh, Thank God. The, Can I just say I like fail every single one. Every question like that just leaves <laughs> me feeling sad and defeated about my own brain. It's that's a really good point because that's a great point because you're so smart. That, that's the kind. But that is the kind of thing I love. I love those things. I would. I would yes. If I were given that, I would be, think about it. And you have and like problem solving tools in your head and I have none. I'm just like. No, but you be. But, it, but But as we know, that has actually no relevance to which of us would be a better employee at Google. We both know that. Is because, there some you know, each job of us is where Yeah, but it matter? does have relevance if you have to stock your your school bus with okay. golf balls. You, to, exactly. <laughs> You've got like a golfing exactly. expedition. Yes, to, to, to stop the hordes of zombies that can only be killed by golf balls. Uh, also, oh, well. all right, just before we go, we have a listener chatter. Again, you guys, what Rock. What a great set of chatters. So you've been tweeting us at, at Slate Gabfest with your chatters. And uh, this week, we have one from at Dimitri Nakassis. And it's a link to a story in Forbes about Pompeii graffiti. And so there's some graffiti that was just discovered at Pompeii. And why is this important? Because for 2,000 years, people have assumed that the Pompeii eruption took place in, I think, in late August or maybe it was early September. And that was based on that was based on uh, the writing of Pliny, who wrote about it 25 years afterwards. It was based on some kind of evidence about what clothes people were wearing and, and some food that they were eating. And they assumed that that's when the eruption was, but they didn't really know. There's been more recent evidence suggesting, again, with a closer examination of the clothes and then about sort of what, what wine they were having, which would be, you know, only grapes that would have been harvested later that maybe it took place later, and they discovered on a wall some graffiti where someone was writing about how he had, in charcoal, he'd written, oh, I overate on uh, this day, which was a day in in late October. And based on sort of where this graffiti was and the fact that it was written in charcoal and not in, some, not in a more permanent uh, ink, suggested it had been written right that year, strongly indicates that this person was at least alive on this day in late October, and therefore the eruption must have happened in October. So it's a great little story. So Check wait, do we care? Does it matter in world history whether it was in August or October? Doesn't, no, it doesn't really matter. Like it's just like a fact. Okay. You know, here's this hugely important historical event that people have talked about and written about and is a monument that people love to visit. And they've had one idea about when it took place. And now it's being rewritten two, two months into the future. Got it. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. You should follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest and tweet some conundrums at us for our conundrum show. Hashtag those conundrum. And also you can email us at conundrum at GabFest at Slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hey there, Political GabFest listeners. It's Luke Burbank. Uh, you might have heard me on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me or maybe Livewire Radio, a couple of shows I work on. But really where I spend most of my time is on a daily podcast called Too Beautiful to Live or TBTL. And I do it five days a week with this guy. Hey, my name's Andrew Walsh. And uh, you don't you don't know me from Adam, honestly, but I am a huge fan of the Political Gab Fest, and I'm so psyched that we get to have a promo running on the show, Luke. Yeah, you, like, never missed this show. But my question is, are there any similarities between TBTL and the Political Gab Fest? <laughs> I've been thinking about it. Here's the best I can do. So you know how the Gab Fest is 99% about politics, but every now and yeah. then they go on these little tangents? The other day, David Plotz was talking about how he's trying to drink more martinis, but for some <laughs> reason... The last martini he had was accompanied by a jello shot. I think TBTL is more like 99% jello shot with the accidental 1% of content. Yeah. Mostly, though, it's just you and me talking about the news and our lives and our insecurity. And then just like a surprisingly robust amount of content involving this laser helmet I bought on Amazon for $900 that's supposed to cure my baldness. How's that working, by the way? Not great, if I'm going to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, if that sounds like the kind of thing you want to listen to five days a week, you can find us over at tbtl.net. That's too beautiful to live. And on Apple Podcasts and wherever you get these things.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 